0: It is good to see each of you, if you're visiting with us, thank you so much for being with us this evening. Uh, It is great to think about our summer camp starting this evening, this afternoon, this evening. They left out early afternoon, and they should be there and settling in, and I guess about to have their evening worship. And this year, I heard that there were at least 90 campers, and that is, as you can imagine, a very large camp. Uh, be sure and keep uh, the the whole aspect of camp in your prayers, but not only their safety and for them to have a good time, but be sure and pray fervently this week that, that a real spiritual difference will be made uh, in the lives of the youth that are there and even the adults that are there. You know, when you talk with individuals about times in their life that they were growing up that something made a spiritual impact upon their life. Oftentimes, individuals talk talk, they talk about a time that was a week during camp that was a turning point for the positive in their life. And let's pray that that, that will happen, that if this will be a, a spiritual growth opportunity for our youth. We appreciate all that Phil does uh, to try to make ways available for our youth to grow. If you have ordered... Uh, some of the books in the past, and we've been trying to get those out, and it seemed like it's been so hectic with just different things. We're going to try to have a table set up after services this evening. If it's not set up at the Amen, hopefully five minutes after the Amen, uh, it might be set up out in the foyer. So if you still want to pick up the books that you ordered, be sure and be looking for that sometime before you leave this evening. It is amazing uh, the generosity of Of you as a congregation, it's amazing the generous way God has blessed us as a spiritual family. Let's be looking for ways that we can encourage others in our community to come and to learn more about an awesome God. If you haven't invited somebody lately, don't let this week go by without taking that opportunity to invite someone to your Bible class or invite them to worship. The grandmother pointed to the beautiful sunset and said to her grandson... ...beautiful picture that God's painted for us. And the little boy said, I know he did, grandmother. And he did it with his left hand. The grandmother was a little startled with that comment and said, well, why do you think he did it with his left hand? And he responded, last Sunday morning in Bible class, we studied that Jesus is sitting on his right hand. Now, when you think about the misunderstandings that perhaps that little boy had in his innocence. But even you think about the misunderstandings that individuals have had about Jesus Christ, even when Jesus Christ stood before them face to face. And here we are 2,000 years later almost, and individuals still have misunderstandings about Jesus. Tonight I want us to look at a lesson based off of what is oftentimes considered a little word, because it's only two letters long, if. But when we think about this little word, if, it becomes a big word in the difference that it makes in sentences. For example, when we look up in the dictionary the word if, we see descriptions like this. And these are just the three examples under the first listing in dictionary.com for the word if. Number one, in the event that, in other words, used in the sentence, if I were to go, I'd be late. Or granting that. If that is true, what should we do? Or on the condition that she will work only if she is paid? Now Jesus used statement if statements, including if, very very often. As a matter of fact, it's almost a as you look at all of the teachings that Jesus gave, and those teachings and in a sense almost pivoted on this word. Now, we could almost do a series that would be six months long on Sunday nights looking at the word if. I don't suppose we'll do that. But at least hopefully tonight it will be of interest to study a few passages that deal with the word if. And let's see what is granted in these statements if we obey what the Lord says. Let's see what the conditions are of the Lord's rewards if we keep what God has said to do. First, let's look in John the 8th chapter. You'll see it on your screen, but there will be other passages tonight that won't be on the screen, so you may want to get your Bible ready. But in John the 8th chapter, verse 24, and by the way, John the 8th chapter alone, that one chapter has so many if statements in it. We'll only look at a couple of those in this lesson tonight. The first being in John the 8th chapter in verse 24. This is what we read Jesus saying, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if, if not will die in your sins. You see, even though individuals were standing right there in front of Jesus Christ physically, there were things about Jesus that they misunderstood and things that they just could not bring themselves to believe. And so Jesus makes this condition very clear. He says, either you believe who I say that I am, or else you'll die in your sins. Now, stating it the way Jesus would state it, it would be like this. You'll die in your sins if, You believe not that I am he. Well, who is it that they had to believe that he was? Go back to John the third chapter for just a moment. And you remember in John the third chapter, Nicodemus came to Jesus at that nighttime visit. And Nicodemus says what many would consider to be a great compliment. For example, at the end of verse 2 in John the third chapter, Nicodemus says this, For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And just before that statement, he said, You are a teacher from God. Now, when we put these two statements together, think about the compliment that that was. In other words, Nicodemus sneaks off to him at nighttime and and knocks on his door and says, I just want to spend some time with you. Why? Wow, what a teacher you are. Well, most of us would take that as a great compliment if someone said, you're such a wonderful teacher, I want to I spend some time with you. But no, not only that, he says, you must be a teacher from God. Oh, well, he didn't even stop there. He said, you must be a teacher from God because no one else could do such powerful miracles. Think of all the compliments that Nicodemus had given Jesus just in the opening remarks. You're a great teacher, it's implied there. You're a teacher from God. You are a miracle worker. And Jesus begins with that statement to say, Buddy, you've got to get it right. You're missing the very, very important point. You know, there are many, many people today that do not deny the fact that Jesus lived. They can read the Gospels, the Epistles, and even secular accounts of history and hear the words of Jesus they don't doubt that he was a great teacher. Many, even today, believe that he was a great teacher, perhaps even from God, that could work miracles. But they still don't believe what Jesus told Nicodemus in John 3, that he had to believe. In verse 12, he somewhat explains the situation that Nicodemus finds himself in. Jesus says, if I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? You see, Jesus is working with Nicodemus here, but he's saying the problem is you're seeing everything from, a heavenly stand- from an earthly standpoint instead of a spiritual or a heavenly standpoint. But Jesus goes ahead and he teaches us some things that he needs to hear. And this is the setting for what is oftentimes called the most popular verse in all of the Bible. And that is in verse 16. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever, now notice this, whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so Jesus said, if you don't believe that I am He, you shall die in your sins. He says to Nicodemus here, you need to get this right. I'm not just a teacher from God. I'm the Son, the only begotten Son of God. John would begin his gospel in John, the first chapter, verse 1 and 2, making sure that if anyone was going to understand anything about Jesus, they would understand it from the very first time their eyes were casted upon this book, this gospel of John. Notice how it begins. In the beginning was the Word. That's Logos. That's Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, He wasn't created in the beginning. He was there. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was God. And He was in the beginning with God. Skip down to verse 14 and let's hear this incarnation described. And the Word, talking about Jesus, became flesh. You see, He was already in existence Now in the incarnation, He took upon Himself flesh and dwelt, tabernacle, meaning for a short time. He was only with us on this earth for about 33 years. And He dwelt among us. And then John interrupts himself here as he says, And we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. What would God look like on earth? Full of grace and truth. Never before had mankind seen the fullness of grace until they could cast their eyes upon Jesus Christ. Never had they seen the fullness of truth in such a way until they could cast their eyes upon Jesus Christ. And so John is beginning this epistle and he's helping us understand what we must understand about Jesus. And from the beginning, John is saying you have to understand that Jesus was God. Jesus came to this earth through the Son of God. He took upon Himself flesh. We have to believe that He is the Son of God, or perish. We have to believe that He is who He says He is, or we will die in our sins. There are two groups that are known in America for door knocking. Neither of those two groups believe in Jesus as we have just studied. The simple point I'm trying to make by that statement if you think that this is just a common sense point, that everyone believes that Jesus Christ has always been, that He is God, that He's the Son of God, that He came to this earth and He dwelt among us, and that He's resurrected and that He's coming again, there are many, many religious people that speak of Jesus that do not share that belief. Now, it's not my judgment call to make, and it's not yours to make. It's Jesus' call. And Jesus' call is this If you don't believe that I am who I say that I am, you shall die in your sins. Let's look at another if statement in John the 8th chapter. In John the 8th chapter, let's read verse 31 and 32. Now, notice what we're doing here as we pick these two references out in John. First he addressed a group of individuals that did not believe him and who he said he was. Now he turns and he addresses a group of individuals that do believe that he is who he says he is. So now let's notice what he says to this group. In John the 8th chapter verse 31, then Jesus says to those Jews who believed him, "If there's a word, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth and the truth "...shall make you free." If they do what? And what is it? You want to be my disciples. A disciple is not only one that follows the teaching of an individual. A disciple is one that follows the teaching and the teacher. In other words, we literally strive to become like that individual. And that's the difference of, of a pupil and a disciple. In other words, we might go to a class and we might listen to a professor that we want to gain his knowledge, but we would never want to be like that professor. A disciple is one that says, I believe what this person says. I want to learn it, but I believe in this person. I want to become like them. Jesus says, you want to be my disciple? And of course, hopefully all of us here say, yes, I want to be the disciple of Christ. He says, let me give you an if statement. In other words, we either will or we won't be, and it'll hinge upon this point. If you abide in my word. Now, if you're reading from the King James translation, it says, if you continue in my word. Now I like having both of those to lay down side by side because it helps me understand what he means. In other words, if, if we look to where someone lived and we say, well, they abide there says, hey, do you know who lives there? And someone else might say, well, I see so-and-so continually go in and out there. I see them uh, continually dwelling there. You see what he's saying? He's not talking about just studying the Word here. He's talking about you and I living our life in the Word or the will of God. Are we willing to make God's words, Christ's words, Our dwelling place. As you think about this idea of dwelling place, I want you to see, not from just my explanation there, first I want you to see a usage of it in the Scriptures, and then we'll go back to the point that's being made right now. So I I just say that to say, let us interrupt this for just a minute and see a usage of the word abide where a different word is used for this same Greek word. Go back to the 11th chapter of Matthew. Matthew, the 11th chapter. We have in verse 23... the same uh, original word. And see if you can pick it out. It's pretty easy. See if you can pick it out here as a terrible, terrible verdict is given to Capernaum. Before we read this, I'll just go ahead and comment to you so that since we're picking up one verse, it'll make sense as we're picking up in the middle of the paragraph. Capernaum had Jesus to dwell among them and do so many miracles among them, and all the miracles Jesus did, so many of the people that lived there didn't believe that He was the Son of God. And so Jesus is pretty fed up with him. And I guess maybe it's safe to say he was a little bit amazed at the fact that individuals could see his power and not believe that he was the Son of God or not follow him. And so here's Jesus' statement about Capernaum. Verse 23, Matthew 11, chapter. And you, Capernaum, who are exalted to heaven... now. That's not a spiritual compliment. When he says exalted to heaven, he's talking about their city was one of prosperity. So in other words, if you went around the area of Galilee and you said, what's a wealthy place to live? They'd say Capernaum. What's an exalted place to live? In other words, this is exalted to heaven. It's more like an expression of speech. And so they're exalted to heaven. Why? Will be brought down to Hades. Now he's talking about spiritual destruction. Why? Here's the if statement. For if the mighty works which were done in you, talking about in your area, had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. What's the word for abide? Remain. Sodom would have remained. You remember it was destroyed early in, in the Bible, back in Genesis. Jesus said, If I could have gone in there and done all the miracles I've done in Capernaum, Sodom would have abided. It would have continued. It would have remained until this very day. Go with me, if you will, to John the 14th chapter. In John the 14th chapter, as we think about now whether or not we're going to abide in Jesus Christ, Jesus gives these wonderful words of comfort in John the 14th chapter and verse 2 and some people don't really like to hear this because they're a little bit materialistic minded and they like to think of heaven as hey I didn't get my mansion on this earth and I'm going to get a huge mansion in heaven well if that's what it would take to make you happy I guess God would grant you that if you were saved because you're going to be happy in heaven but I doubt it's going to take material things to make us happy in heaven since everything will be of a spiritual nature there In my Father's house are many mansions. That's the same root word of abide. In other words, the idea is, in my Father's house, there's much room. There'll be plenty of places for us to dwell. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'd go to prepare a place for you. Now, keep that in thought, and let's skip over to verse 23. We'll see this same root word again in 23, except this time another word's used. Jesus answered and said to them, If, and here's our word if again, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Of course, the word for abide there is home. And so... In other words, it's more of a noun of a place to stay just as earlier it was more of a noun as referring to a mansion. Now let's think about this. We've just read in the book of John three different ways that this word is used. The first if statement was if we want to be the disciple of Jesus, we have to abide in His word. And then if we will do that, if we love Him, He will abide in us. In other words, have we made room for Jesus in our life? And if that's the case, He'll make room for us eternally. Now let's go back to this point of making room in us as we choose to abide in the Word of God. If you've never experienced this, I'm sure all of us have heard of this. Have you heard about the days that <clears throat> once a year it's take your child to work day? Now, I wonder how many of you have done that and you thought, hey, I've, I've got to make room for my child at work today. And maybe you did some things that you don't normally do because your child was there that day or maybe you uh, didn't do some things that you normally did because your child was there that day and all day long you were thinking about that you have someone else with you and And you have to work them in to your daily schedule. You know, Christians take God with them everywhere. When you're at work, you do think throughout the day, don't you, that God is here? I've made a room for Him in my life because I abide in the Word. And as I abide in the Word... God abides in me. In other words, I've made a place in my life for God. Surely all of us that are Christians on a very frequent basis throughout the day, we don't do certain things that maybe we're tempted to do simply because I can't do that with God right here. That'd be disrespectful to God, my Father, my brother Christ. Or maybe we go into our homes and... And we realize that in our homes we're always making room for God. There are things we will do or things we won't do. And and the bottom line is it's because we dwell in the Word of God and God dwells here and we're not going to do that in the presence of God. Friends, the Lord makes it real clear. He doesn't make it gray at all. He says, if you're going to be my disciple," you abide in my word and i'll abide in you but if not if there's not that place in our life to make room for jesus we don't love him according to what we just read and we're not his disciples let's look at one more if statement let's go to matthew the 5th chapter and verse 13 matthew the 5th chapter Let's read verse 13. We just read what He said to those that didn't believe. We read the if statement that He said to those that do believe that if they're going to be disciples, to dwell in His Word. Now let's see what He says to those that believe and how we relate to others. We just talked about how we relate to God. And let's close this lesson by seeing how we relate to others. In Matthew, the fifth chapter, we're going to read verse 13 as he says, You are the salt of the earth. But if, if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. The Lord says, I want Christians, and uses the analogy to view themselves as salt. And we immediately recognize characteristics of salt one is to enhance flavor and the second is to preserve now as we think about to enhance this flavor we think about as we go out into the world exactly what does that mean for a Christian to do I wonder if we went to your co-workers or to your friends at school and we just asked them this simple question If we called your name and said, when they come around you and work around you or they're around you in your classes at school, does it seem to make it easier for you to do the right thing? I wonder. They say, oh, yes. You know, you can always count on them to encourage us to do the right thing. Or you can always count on their example to be the right example. They just enhance that righteousness. What about if the salt has lost its saltiness? So there's no enhancing a flavor. There's no persevering there. Jesus has no problem. And here's the really the whole point that I want you to talk about just has no thing. Flip the coin over and look at the other side. There's no value except for you to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. Turn with me, if you will, to Colossians, the fourth chapter, and let's look at what is said in Colossians, the fourth chapter, verse five and six, as it relates to this saltiness. In Colossians four, five, and six, he relates it especially to how we deal with unbelievers. He says in verse 5, "...walk in wisdom toward those who are outside." That lets us know. He's talking about how we walk, how we interact in our life with those that are unbelievers. Notice this, redeeming the time. Now, he's not just talking about redeeming time. When you really look at this carefully, what he's saying is redeeming the occasions. In other words, if we talk about the time, that's a huge difference in time. What are you doing over time or what are you doing at this time? And so he says, here, as you deal with those that are unbelievers, redeem the time. Well, how would we redeem the time, Lord? In other words, it's a purchasing back. What is it that you want us to do in these situations where we have an an opportunity to affect a neighbor that's an unbeliever, a co-worker, a friend that's an unbeliever? Isn't it interesting how clearly he lays it out? It has so much to do with our speech. Verse 6, let your speech always be with grace. Now here is what is interesting that we have the word grace being used and here it's not talking about the gift of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here he's talking about the gift of grace that you and I are to give to non-believers. In other words, it's grace in its simplest form to talk about a manner or an act that is in favor of. In other words, it's a gift. It's something that the other person would want to receive. Well, what would a unbeliever want to receive? Seasoned with salt talking about your speech that you may know how you ought to answer each one the Lord tells us that there's a big if statement about us being salt and if we're going to be salt not only do we deal with our brothers and sisters in, in a salty an enhancing way, but we also deal with folks out in the world. We make sure that when we have the opportunity to answer them, we make sure that our answer is a gift to them and that it's a gift with salt sprinkled on it. James teaches us how easy it is to misuse the tongue. Paul teaches us here in Ephesians, the reminder. Use the tongue, but put some salt on it. You know, sometimes we hide behind excuses that says, well, I'm just a quiet person. I don't think there's any qualifying verses that we read before this that says a quiet person has the right to be rude. No, even a quiet person needs to speak up and put some salt in their words. Well, oh, I'm just a gruff person. I was born that way. Well, repent. Lord says, big if statement. If you can't find a way to put kindness in your words, to put salt on them, Lord says, you're ready to be cast out and trodden under the foot of man. There's so many if statements that we could read in the scriptures, but tonight we've read about what the Lord said to those that are non-believers. You'll die in your sins if you don't believe that He is who He says He is. He says to those that are believers, you want to be a disciple of mine? You can if you will abide in my word. Let's make our life in the word of God so that we'll make a place in our life for God to dwell so that He can make a place for us to dwell for eternity. Well, how do we deal with each other? Let's make sure we always deal graciously with each other. Words seasons with salt. Tonight, isn't it wonderful that God, He gives an invitation to deal graciously with all of us. And it is a blessing that we don't receive what we deserve. Because all of us have reached an accountable age of sin. And it's only by the grace of God that we can be saved. And when we respond to God's grace, it's by submitting ourselves to His will. In other words, that's abiding in that Word. And so we say to God, what do you want me to do? And He says, I want you to believe that I am who I said that I am, the Son of God. And to be willing to repent of sins and turn to Him, submitting our life to Him, not ashamed of Him, but confessing that He is the Son of God and being baptized into Christ for the remission of those sins. We come out of that water to live for Him. And if you've done that, but yet you've strayed from Him, will don't you come back to Him tonight, repenting of sins and making life right with Him. Let's pray forgiveness. Maybe you've never been baptized into Christ. Tonight would be a wonderful opportunity to do that. Let's make sure that we leave here tonight ready to make a place for God to dwell in our life. And let's take Him everywhere we go. If we can help you in any way, come as we stand, as we sing.